Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This week, we have Senior Pastor Heath Bauer bringing the message, A Call to Pure Doctrine and Practice. This is part of his What Matters to God series. It's a study on the seven churches of Revelation. Today's church is Thyatira. I hope you enjoy today's message. this morning church as to where we're going to be turning if you haven't already found yourselves turning there go ahead and open up to revelation chapter 2 these last few weeks we've been basically reading the report cards of seven different churches trying to discern what does god want what does god want from this church what are the things that jesus loves what are the things that jesus despises And so today, we're going to jump right into the text here with the church at Thyatira, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 2. And he simply begins uh, by showing us Jesus' posture toward this church. You're going to find that Jesus presents a different facet of him to the church, depending on their relationship to him. Unfortunately, the posture Jesus approaches the church of Thyatira is one of judgment. You'll see that very soon. It says, to the angel, the messenger, the angelos, the preacher, the pastor, the leaders of the church in Thyatira, I write. Now, Thyatira, we've got a map up here if you want to see where Thyatira is. Uh, it has all the churches of the Revelation there in what is modern-day Turkey. Thyatira is a city that was in a valley about 40 miles, if you see there, uh, from Pergamum. And because it was in the valley, it was a city that was subject to being destroyed and rebuilt many times over. Uh, It started with Alexander the Great as just an outpost. It was basically to slow down enemies from approaching uh, some of the bigger cities like Pergamum. But once Rome completely took over, uh, they entered into the Pax Romana, right? The time, the Rome, the peace of Rome. And during that time, they began to develop all kinds of trade because now the valley was actually a benefit to them. And there were all kinds of people traveling through. This particular city was known for their dying, not due to enemies, D-Y-I-N-G, okay? Uh, for their dying. And so they would, uh, they'd sell all of these resources of dying so you could finally uh, put away your Jedi robes, okay? You were, people who were sick of that, they wanted to wear purples, they wanted to wear reds, they want bright colors. Instead of beige, 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 uh, they'd come to a city like this. And so they became very wealthy city. The problem was in this particular city is if you wanted to sell these dyes, if you wanted to be part of a trade of any kind, you had to join a guild. No problem. Until the guild tells you that their right for entry and membership into that guild was you had to honor their patron deity, which involved meat sacrifice to idols. It involved uh, temple prostitution. That's a problem for most Christians. It should be. And so uh, that was their their right of membership. However, a lot of people, they had to make a decision between Jesus and their career. Does that still happen today? Where you have to decide, am I going to obey God's word? Am I going to do what's best for my paycheck? And so a lot of Thyatira had compromised for worldly gain. And because of this compromise, Jesus is going to represent himself as standing in judgment. Look at how Jesus relates himself to them. He says, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet that are like burnished bronze. Now, where have you seen a picture of Jesus like this before? If you've read Revelation much, you'll find that it's just the previous chapter. 
chapter. In Revelation 1, verses 14 to 15, it says, The hairs of his head were white like wool and like snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Now, friends, when you read that, it's easy just to pass over that and say, okay, next, what do you got? This was a terrifying image. When Jesus chooses to show his glorified form in the first chapter of Revelation, uh, it's meant to show that he is coming in wrath against sin, the holy, uh, mighty God that he is. Remember, the, the full title of Revelation is the revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ. And if you read much of Revelation, it's about the seals and the trumpets and the bold judgments of the tribulation. That our God is a God of love. But if, you, but if you're living in sin, you're living in rebellion against God, you have every reason to be afraid of him, that he is standing in judgment. It says that, uh, that his eyes are like fire, that they see everything and they burn things in judgment. Hebrews 4.12 says that they even, he even knows the thoughts and intents of our heart. He knows why we do what we do. Friends, a lot of times people, we just got done with Halloween. A lot of people, times people think of Halloween as being one of the scarier things. We think of the occult as being terrifying. Demons are scary. Witches are scary. The devil is scary. Friends, can I tell you on biblical authority, there's nothing more terrifying in the universe than the white, radiant holiness of a holy God. That's why the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Paul says, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And so when we talk about the fear of God, a lot of times Christians were like, oh, I know what the fear of God is. It just means we respect God, well, which is true. But friends, this word fear is the Greek word phobos. What does that sound like? Phobia. You ever have a phobia? My wife has a lot of phobias, uh, one of them being spiders. And, uh, you know, if we're even in a zoo and you'll see this big hairy tarantula on the other side of the glass, she'll still kind of stand far back. She respects the spider, right? But if they take that glass away, the respect goes to absolute dread and terror. She's the kind of person that would start, she'd pull the shotgun out and she'd be blowing holes in the wall to get rid of the spider because that's what fear does. Friends, the fear of the Lord is different depending on how you're related to him. If you're one of his children, it is that of respect and honor. If you will, his wrath against sin has glass in front of it. You need not fear it because our sin has been judged. But friends, if you don't know Jesus and you're living in your sin, it's not a mere respect that you need to have. You need to see the Revelation 1 Jesus who stands in white, radiant holiness prepared to judge sin. And you have every reason in the world to be knee-knocking and trembling and losing bodily functions at the sight of a holy God. God is so fearful that in the end times, men will cry out uh, to the mountains, fall on us to save us from the wrath of he who is coming. Now, how scared do you have to be before you pray that a mountain falls in your face? Okay, the fear of God is not just respect if you don't know him. He's not just a divine buddy. And Jesus presents himself this way. It says his feet were burnished bronze. Uh, bronze, I got a picture of the altar here for you. Uh, bronze was the material that this altar was made of. And you're meant to see, there, there's a reason God uses this term bronze here. You're meant to think judgment because at this bronze altar in the temple is where this animal would be laid and the wrath of God against our sin would be placed upon this animal. And so when we talk about Jesus' feet being bronze, we're meant to go to this image. Okay, God is going to tread out 
his wrath against sin. Uh, it's referred to as burnished bronze. Most of us haven't burnished anything in a while. Uh, it just means polished. Okay? That it's a, it's a bright, a polished metal is a bright reflective surface that when we see it, it's just, it's, it's almost blinding in its, in its radiance. It's meant to picture God's holiness, that God's holy feet are coming to tread out his wrath against sin. Now, this is a very different image than what we've been seeing given to these other churches in Revelation. We're meant here to picture with these feet, Revelation 19.15, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Now, most of us haven't used a wine press. Think, uh, if you've ever seen a movie of Italy and you got all these ladies and they're holding up their dresses and they're, they're stamping on, you know, this, this wine press. They've got all these grapes in here and they're smashing it with their feet. And the, little, the red, you know, wine is going up all over their, their legs and it's running out into this vat, the storage unit. That's what we're meant to picture. And that's what Jesus is said to come and to do in his retribution against sin. However, Jesus is first going to praise the faithful few. In verse 19, he says, I know your works, I know your love, your faith, your service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. And so Jesus acknowledges, even though this is a really lousy church, Thyatira, it has been mostly overrun by compromising ungodly people. But there is a remnant faithful few, and God says, I see what you're doing. I notice your works. I see it. And then he praises them for some things. And it's interesting, the praise that he gives for this remnant is amongst the top praise God gives for any of the churches. The first thing he praises is that their love. Trivia question, what's the only church in Revelation that Jesus praises for their love? It's the remnant right here in Thyatira. And Jesus mentions it first. Why? Because love is that chief defining quality of who a believer is. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. How? That you have love for one another. Love is that, is that thing at which we, uh, as a believer, we can tell whether or not our faith is genuine. I can say that in good authority. 1 John 4, 7 and 8, beloved, let us love one another. Why? Because love is of God, and everybody that, that loves knows God and is born of God. He that doesn't love, what? Does not know God. Because God is love. How can we say we have God in our hearts if we don't show love? And so the chief reason that we have confidence that we're saved, friends, it's not because you're right here today. It's not because you can open up the front cover of your Bible and you remember the date and time that you prayed a prayer. Can you pray a prayer and not be saved? All the time. Jesus says in the end days there will be those who say, Lord, Lord. They're praying, they're calling out to him. Have we not prophesied and done mighty works in your name? And he says, depart me from I never knew you. Friend, it's not a prayer that saves you. The prayer is an expression of faith, and that faith produces love. The greatest evidence that we are born-again believers is that we have love in our hearts and that we are living a changed and converted life. And so Jesus praises this. By the way, if you want to know a little bit more about what true biblical love looks like, Join us on our Facebook page every week. We're showing one facet of love and just going into a little six, eight-minute devotional as to what love is. And so, ladies, make sure your husbands listen to this. You'll thank me later. He might even take you out on a date. He also praises these faithful few that they were 
full of faith. Now, faith, you know, Hebrews 11.1 1 reminds us, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If we just had to sum it up, faith in its simplest form is believing God so as to obey him. And then we just trust him with the results. I don't have to control things, God. I don't have to understand why this is true. I just believe you and I'm going to do it. And that's when we demonstrate our faith. They're also praised for serving God. This is not a complacent or selfish bunch of people. Okay, at least this remnant. They're called faithful. They didn't just attend church. This is the remnant that were doing the work that church does. And friends, if you're here part of this church and you know who you are, that faithful remnant who are just, you're working hard, you're working tirelessly, I just want to say thank you. We need good, faithful workers. Every member, every single member here, each one of us have a spiritual gift, and God desires us to use it. And you know, can I just tell you, when we use that spiritual gift in the church, friends, it's a blessing to you as it is to others. It is a joy that my life has more significance to it than just working a nine-to-five and then trying to have as much fun as I can on the weekend, knowing that my life has eternal impact. Friends, it's fun to be in service of the Lord. And so he praises them that they are serving, and God notices that. Even if nobody in the church notices what you're doing for the Lord, Jesus notices. Matthew 10, 42, he says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cold, cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will not lose his reward. That God rewards even the smallest little things that we do if they're done with the intent of honoring God and loving others. There is, think about that. There's not too many things in your life where there is eternal reward. But even the smallest thing you do on behalf of others in the name of Jesus, there is eternal reward for that. They're also praised for their endurance, that they continue to just remain up under the burden of suffering and continue to serve the Lord. So much so that Jesus says that their works today are greater than the first. What does that mean? It means that they continue every year. They become more and more mature in Christ. Can that be said of us? That I am more mature now than I ever have been. I am more mature now than I was last year. I was, I'm more mature. I am more active in service. I'm more committed to Jesus now than I was 10, 15 years ago. That was said of this church. They were always moving and growing, okay? And by the way, if you want to continue to mature in your faith, I encourage you to get involved in one of our church's D groups where we, uh, we, come up, we pull you apart into small groups of about four people and you study God's word, you study the scripture together so as to go deeper there. And there's just a brotherhood, a sisterhood, and accountability there that uh, every one of us needs. But they served with endurance, they continued to faithfully serve God, even under very difficult circumstances. However, that wasn't all the church. Jesus has a rebuke for those who are unfaithful. He says, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, the church was facing all kinds of internal corruption. They were, it says they're tolerating a woman named Jezebel. Now, Jezebel is not likely this woman's actual name. Jezebel, in, in Jewish culture, was the most evil woman that they could ever think of. It'd be like naming one of your children, you know, Adolf Hitler Smith. You know, not too many, any Adolfs out here this morning? 
I've never, I've never dedicated a, a baby named Adolf Hitler uh, because they, it, just, it has too bad of a name and a connotation here. And so this lady, it's likely, Jezebel is likely a description of her character and what she did within that church to damage it. It was this woman Jezebel from the Old Testament uh, whose prophets withstood Elijah at Mount Carmel. You remember that? The prophets of Baal and they're calling out fire from the sky. This woman had 400 prophets of Baal on retainer. 400 prophets, uh, false god Ashtarte. Okay, and she's just this evil woman. She began the systematic killing of all of the prophets of God. She's trying to scrub away all the truth and put in false teaching. That's what Jezebel did in the Old Testament. Well, after murdering a lot of God's people, God dealt with it by raising up Jehu to confront her in 2 Kings 9, verses 30 to 35. And by the way, if you have a weak constitution, you may want to plug your ears and hum the national anthem. Uh, when Jehu came to Jezreel, it says Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. She was likely dressed up because she was hoping to lure this uh, Jehu away from the Lord, just as she had King Ahab. And it says, Jehu entered the gate, and he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? It says, Two or three eunuchs looked out at him, and he said, Throw her down. Okay, now plug your ears. Uh, it says, They threw her down, and some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. And he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her. But when they went to bury her, they found no more than her skull, her feet, and the palms of her hands. Friends, that's when you know you've been judged by God. You've been betrayed by your own servants. You got thrown out of a window, okay, crushed on the ground, trampled by horses. God personally takes your blood and paints the wall with it, and then he lets the dogs eat what's left. But even the dogs have standards. What didn't they eat? Her, her thinking was so evil, her hands had done so much evil, and her feet were swift to shed blood. Even dogs have standards. They wouldn't even eat those. They just left that behind. It's sort of just a, a, a picture and a reminder of how wicked this woman was in leading the nation of Israel into idolatry. And God says that this, there's a woman in Thyatira so evil he calls her Jezebel. She's doing similar things. She's leading God's people into sin and idolatry. And first of all, she shouldn't even be leading this church. Why not? 1 Timothy 2 is pretty clear. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but rather she is to remain quiet. Quiet simply meaning she's not serving as a pastor, okay? Not that she doesn't talk in church. Uh, 1 Timothy 3 talks about the pastor being the husband of one wife. And so this woman is already disregarding the Bible. Friends, when you have a religious movement in the church that begins by disrespecting, dishonoring, and ignoring the word of God, you're not off to a good start. And so, but this is where she's at. And it says she calls herself a prophetess. Jesus says she calls herself this. She's not really one. But she likes to be seen as a prophetess. She wants the title of prophetess. She doesn't do the actual work of a prophetess. Can that happen in the church too? That you get pastors out there who are just there for name recognition, who are there for whatever kind of benefits they can get, but really their heart is not to serve the Lord, it's not to serve the church. Can you get false pastors like that all day long? What about in the church? Can we get deacons who just want the title of deacon, but they don't want to do the work of a deacon? That can happen. 
What about a teacher? Can we get teachers here who, who like the title of teacher or they like uh, to control the narrative of the class, but they really don't do the hard work and study of rightly dividing the word of truth. They just like to lead the class. It can happen all the time. But friends, these things are not going to happen in this church. Those, we're not going to take roles upon ourselves because we like how it makes us look and feel. We're not going to be consumed with titles. That's what Pharisees do. Luke 11 says, Woe to you, Pharisees. You love the chief seats in the synagogues. Can you imagine a religious leader coming up to you and saying, uh, You're sitting in my seat. Okay? They want the chief spots. Furthermore, he says, The Pharisees, they love the greetings in the marketplaces. Okay? They like to be observed by their titles. Oh, hey, Heath. Uh, That's Reverend Pastor Heath to you. Thank you. Okay. They want their titles. They They want to see their names in lights. They want to be recognized. Friends, this is not what God's people do. This is what Pharisees do. This is what uh, Jezebel and the church of Thyatira did. But friends, as a church, we're going to do nothing out of selfish ambition. Almost sounds like a scripture from Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. That we do not think too highly of ourselves. Friends, we cannot be blessed by God as a church if we do not abandon our own individual pride. Pride is the sin of Satan, friends. Who wanted to be lifted up and seen as God. Friends, there's only room for one person to be exalted in this church. It's not me, and it's not you. It's Jesus, and we want to know what he thinks about church. And so if we want God to bless this church, it means that Jesus has to be the very central figure of this body. So this woman is teaching, he says, my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. She had hijacked the church of God and she's turning it into a thinly veiled temple to Baal. Full of the the meat offered to idols and the immorality. And beyond that, verse 24 even reveals to us that this woman was coming to them with deeper truths. She was coming to them with prophecies. She calls herself a prophetess. Is there a problem, friends, when we have a completed Bible, when somebody comes into the church and says, I have a new word to share with you from God? Is that a problem for you? That's the right answer, by the way. (laughs) Some of you guys got, you know, passed that test. Nobody comes into this church with further prophecies about God. The Bible is a completed canon. It's It's a doctrine called the sufficiency of the scriptures. It's enough. And so when someone comes in the church and says, I have deeper truths to give you, I have a new prophecy of God to tell you, friends, that should be your warning flags going off. Lights should be flashing. There's nothing outside of this Bible that we need to hear. Declared authoritatively is coming from God. But this woman, they would, she brought in these teachings from a, a God called Bythos, who was supposed to give you these deeper truths. Oh, you're a JV Christian? <laughs> you're only reading the Bible? Well, I have a direct link to God, and he speaks through me directly, and he told me I want, you need to hear something. Friends, by the way, this is why you will never, ever hear me say to you these words. God told me, unless I'm quoting Scripture. The reason is, whenever we adopt that phrase for ourselves, God told me, God said, God told me I need to do this. It's a claim to divine authority. It's a claim to prophecy. Now, most of us don't mean it that way. I know what you mean by it. Most of you simply mean that I really feel strongly in my spirit that God wants me to share this with you. But, if we, do, but we need to be careful how we use our terms because if we don't use our terms correctly, we say, God told me this. It is a claim to prophecy. And so let's just be accurate. Hey, friend, 
I really feel God leading me to share this with you. Thought it might be of an encouragement to you. Okay? We just want to be accurate. We don't want to, we don't want to fall into the same sin that this lady had. But we don't bring extra prophecy into the Bible because the, Bibles are, the Bible is sufficient. 2 Timothy 2, 3, 16, or 16 and 17, or 3, 16 and 17 simply says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete. That's all he needs. Thoroughly furnished for every good work. The Bible says that, that everything we need that pertains to life and godliness is found in our knowledge of, of him. So everything we need for life, everything we need for godliness, everything we need for teaching, everything we need to be a full and complete disciple is found in where? All Scripture. When somebody wants to go around Scripture and add to Scripture or give you an additional word from God, friends, you need to run. We, we here at this church are going to be those that are people of the book because that is what God has called us to preach. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word in season, out of season, when it's convenient, when it's not, when the public loves you for it, and even when the public hates what you're preaching, you hold fast to God's word. Well, Jezebel, with her new prophecies and immoral practices, they, she had corrupted the church. And verse 20 of Revelation 2 says the church tolerated her. Now, how do we understand this word tolerate? Uh, you'll understand it. Um, think of a TSA agent at an airport. You've been through airports. Most of us have flown, some of us several times. Uh, we always thought it was funny when we were flying in Asia. There, you know, there's always standards of what you can and can't bring into an airport, right? Uh, I got a picture up here of some of the things that you'll see in an Asian airport, and it'll be bigger than this. That'll be one of many, by the way. I always just thought it was funny, all the things that you have to list. I mean, most of us know you can't bring a knife, you can't bring a lighter. But in Asia, they're much more specific as to what you can't bring, which just amazes me. What, I can't bring my chainsaw into the airport here? You know, I gotta leave that behind? Uh, grenade? Really? Some guys are bringing Vietnam War era pineapple grenades to an airplane, yet somebody has to put a sign on there. Uh, but it's there because they have to post the standard. This is the standard. This is what we won't allow you to bring into this house. Now, do the TSA agents just take your word for it? Hello, sir. Good to see you today. Do you have any grenades on you? No, I do not. Thank you very much. You may pass. Somebody take advantage of that? You bet they will. What do they do? They have accountability. They're going to go through your bag and they're saying, okay, mister, whatever, you know, let's open your bag up. Oh, look at this. You know, you can't bring a, you know, a medieval flail into the airport here. We're going to set that aside. You, you know, this grenade, this grenade, we're going to set aside. They are accountable. And they're going to look through your things and they're going to hold you to the standard. Sir, if you'll look here, we told you you can't bring that stuff in. And then they're going to pat you down. They're going to stick your stuff through a metal detector and an x-ray. And they're going to make you do an awkward half jumping jack, right? You been there? And it, it, it's, it's all because there's this accountability. Here's the standard. We won't let you bring it in. This is the term that God uses of the, the, the leaders of the church in Thyatira. You said, all right, let them on in. You can bring that in here. And it's for that very thing that God is judging this church. And so, friends, how do we apply that to us today? We don't, we don't allow false teaching in the church. We it's God has posted what is true and what is false. And then we don't just take people's word for it. Oh, are you bringing false teacher into your Sunday school today? No? All right. Be warmed and filled. Have a great day. God bless. We look at what people teach. And we examine and we compare it to the standard. And you say, whoa, you're not bringing that into this house. 
There are certain things God hasn't approved to be brought in here. Well, this term here means the church saw what this lady was teaching and said, it's okay, we don't really want to deal with her. After all, have you tried to talk to that woman? Can there ever be people in a church who are just so contentious and so nasty that just nobody wants to touch them? I know what they're bringing isn't right, and I know it ain't healthy, and I know they're not loving, but I don't want to deal with it. You want to deal with that lady? You want to deal with that guy? Not me. And so what they did is they just said, let's just ignore it. Let's just let it in here. I'm sure it won't completely destroy our church and make us a byword in the book of Revelation. I'm sure that won't happen. And they just let it in. Friends, we have to confront false teaching even when it's not comfortable. It's difficult. And I know some folks are like, well, doctrine divides. We don't, we don't talk about doctrine. We just let everything, you know, we just let it in there. Friends, if you have false teaching in your church, can I just tell you your church is already divided? You're already divided. It's just that you won't know that you just won't deal with it. And eventually we become the church of Thyatira where it takes over. And so Jesus gives a warning to the unfaithful. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. You see, when Jesus says, I give her time. Uh, God is patient with us. He'll give us time to repent, but he won't give us forever. There's a reason God says, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. Hardening your hearts just means you're delaying your obedience. Because a lot of us with sin as Christians, we know we shouldn't have it, but we just let it sit in our life anyway. We'll deal with that at a later day. Friends, that's what the Bible calls hardening your hearts. I want you to think of your spirituality like a nerve. If you burn your finger too many times, eventually what happens? You can't feel it anymore. Okay? And when we sin, that first time we sin, it's like, ow, that hurt. <laughs> Probably shouldn't have done that. We do it again, and it keeps happening, but it doesn't hurt us quite as bad as it used to. And it gets to a place where we become hardened. The Bible says, uh, Ephesians 4, I think 15, where it talks about, or 19 rather, uh, that we become past feeling. We can't even feel it anymore. And so we just, it feels like a normal part of our life, and we just let it live within our life. And God says, there will come a time when I'm going to have to judge that. And so that's why it says, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts, because tomorrow you may not care. Today, if you still feel pain about the sin that you're in, deal with it now, because tomorrow you may not care. And then you're just going to go through a lifestyle of sin, inviting the judgment of God. And so Jesus warns the unfaithful, repent now. What if we don't, Jesus? What if we don't want to deal with our sin? Jesus tells them what he's going to do with their unrepentant sin. He says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her. In other words, they're guilty of her same works. I will throw them into great tribulation, which is a period of trial after trial after trial, unless they repent of her works. Oh, and here's strong words. And I will strike her children dead. Wouldn't you just want to hear a story about God's love this morning? But this, this is a word that God wants us to hear. This is what it means preaching the whole word. It's when it's, when it's difficult to hear and when it's easy to hear. And this is one of those difficult to hear things. Will God ever make us sick because we're living in continual sin? The answer is yes. You say, well, I know he did that in the Bible times, you know, Ananias and Sapphira, but I mean, like for me though, like if I'm living in continual sin, is some of the sickness that I experience due to my sin? The answer is yes. Is all sickness due to sin? No, it's not. But I think it's healthy for every believer anytime they enter into a, trial, a period of trial and sickness that we immediately turn to God and say, God, are you trying to communicate something to me? 
Is there some sin that I'm harboring in my life? Is there something I'm just not doing that I'm supposed to be doing? Lord, are you trying to get my attention? It's never wrong to have that spirit and repent of whatever God brings to your mind. Okay? But God, I can tell you on biblical authority, friends, there are people in Unity Baptist Church who are sick and who are dead because of their sin. Now, I don't know that because firsthand, I don't know any of you all that well. I say it on biblical authority. There's folks in every church, friends, who are suffering from this. Folks who are going through tribulation, period of trial after trial after trial after trial. People who are in, on a sick bed. People who even die. God will take someone's life, you mean, if they live in continual, habitual sin as a Christian? Read 1 John 5. He says, there is a sin unto death. And it doesn't mean any particular sin. You do this one, God snuffs you. It means we live in continual, habitual sin. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of that, by the way. That's why the Bible says, but let a man examine himself. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. Let a man examine himself. What if I don't do that? The Bible, ha Bible says, but if he doesn't, right? Some of you are sick and some of you sleep. You're dead. Friends, you want to know more about the Lord's Supper? Come back next week. We will be observing the Lord's Supper together. And if you want to learn how to avoid that kind of a situation, you need to come back next week. So their suffering as a church also served another purpose as a cautionary tale to others. Jesus says, and then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart. That I don't, I don't I'm not ignorant of all your sin, church. I'm, I see it and I'm going to deal with it. It's the reason when you watch the old cowboy western movies and the sheriff has a public hanging. It's not because people enjoyed watching that. They came because it's a cautionary tale. Don't steal horses or you end up with one of these nice ropes around your neck. Okay, it's a cautionary tale. Thyatira was a cautionary tale to churches. Don't be this. And God says, and I will give each of you according to your works. And okay, now works here is not according to your sins, according to your works, the good deeds that they do. God says, I'm going to reward that which is good that you do. How we give, God sees. More importantly, he also sees what we leave behind. You know, what we use for ourselves. God knows our heart and our motive in our giving. How about how we speak to others? When we come to church and we demand things for ourselves or if we come to bless and encourage others, God sees. What about how we serve? Whether we come to church at all, God sees. And he says, and I will give each of you according to your works. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that every one of us as believers will stand before the judgment, the bema seat of Christ to give an account for all that we've done and receive reward or for loss. Now, I, want you, I just want to be clear here. Believers do not stand before the great white throne. Is there a difference? Big difference. In the great white throne, only unbelievers stand before it. And the books are opened and they are judged according to their sins. Where was a believer's sin judged? At the cross. And it will never come back to you. The handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that was contrary to us, was nailed to the cross. It's done. And I, I thank God I'll never have to be met, brought face to face with my sins again. All my sins, past, present, and future, are laid upon Jesus. But will we still be judged? Yes, we will. According to our works. Are you serving the Lord? Are you giving? Are you, are you blessing others? Are you a part of his ministry? Or are you just living life for yourself? There will be reward or a loss of reward. And so God reminds them of that. And so his command to the faithful is this. For the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, you have remained faithful. 
You have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, but to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast until I come. Friends, that's spiritual warfare right there. A lot of times we're confused what spiritual warfare is. It's not you shouting out demons. It's not you cursing Satan. Spiritual warfare is a truth battle. There's Jesus who's the way, the truth, and the life, and there's Satan, the father of lies. Christians are given a body of truth in Christ and in God's word, and Jesus says, hold fast. He puts us on a hill, and he says, I want you to die here on this hill. Whatever you do, do not give ground. And by the way, Ephesians 6, here's some armor to wear so that you can three times, just in this, a few short verses, he says, stand, stand therefore, having done everything to stand. That's spiritual warfare. We've, we, we have a body of truth, and we do not move. What if culture moves and changes? We don't change. Jesus says, hold fast. And so that's his command to the faithful. Hold on, I am coming. Reinforcements are on their way. And then he gives a promise to he who con- the one who conquers, who keeps my works till the end. Okay, he's defining what conquering is. Staying faithful all the way to the end. He has a promise. To him I will give authority over the nations. The Bible says that we will rule with him. Thrones will be set up. And he says, and he will rule them with, as with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken to pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. An iron rod just means that his authority will be absolute. It will be unchallenged. And he will destroy the enemies of God one day as earthenware pots, just destroyed and shattered into so many pieces it can't be put back together again, kind of like Jezebel. Is that too soon? Okay. So he's going, to go, he's going to destroy the enemies of God. And he's going to establish a literal thousand-year earthly kingdom. And then he promises us a reward. He says, I will give to him the morning star. What is a morning star? If you look in Revelation 22, 16, or 2 Peter 1, 19, it's, the, it's Jesus. Jesus is the morning star here. And what I want you to see here is for those who endure to the end, who conquer, who, who are faithful to the end of their life, Jesus offers us the greatest prize one can possibly have. It's Jesus. Friends, I want you to hear this. The great appeal of the gospel is not heaven. The glory of a believer is not heaven. The joy of a believer, the hope of a believer is not heaven. When we get to heaven, friends, I'm, I'm just here saying with biblical confidence that we will not be so amazed at the golden streets or the glassy sea or the throne of God or the, the eternal city. Our reward, our prize, our joy is Jesus alone. Friends, that's going to be enough. That is the reward that we look for. And friends, that's why in our gospel appeals, we don't just keep offering people heaven. You want to go to heaven where it's great? Chant this Christian mantra real quick and God owes you entrance. It's our password. That's not true eternal life, friends. And so Jesus is the reward. What we're fighting for, this hill that we die on, it's for a person. A fellow back in the Great Depression knew that, a fellow named James Braddock. Uh, there's a film about him, Cinderella Man. But uh, he grew up, and he's, a, he's an actual boxer. He was a kind of a middling boxer, 11 and 20. Not someone you'd necessarily put your money on, not that you should gamble. But uh, he wasn't a great boxer. He was okay because he would only use his right hand. His left hand was weak. Well, when his right hand broke, the fella during the Great Depression had to go work on the docks. And his arm grew strong. And so now he had a strong left arm 
and a strong right arm. And so when he finally got his chance to get back into boxing, he did exceptionally well, and everybody's, you know, just wondering what happened. What they didn't realize is that poor uh, James Braddock is that his family had been suffering. Their power gets turned out. They don't have enough money for food. Trying to send the kids off to family so the kids don't starve. They don't freeze to death. And so when they asked him, Basically, James, what is, the, what is the reason for this great turnaround of, of success? He says, I finally found what I was fighting for. I said, what's that? He says, milk. He's fighting for milk for his kids. He's fighting for people. There's loved ones. And so the title didn't matter much to him. The, the fame, the glory, you know, excessive money didn't much matter to him. In fact, he gave money back to the welfare office, okay? Uh, what mattered to him was a relationship. And friends, that's why we fight today. It's a relationship, that's what motivates us. Anything else is a very weak motivation for service. We serve because of a king who came and took on flesh and died in my place and that I might be able to be with him where he is. And did you know that's Jesus' prayer request for you, by the way? John 17, Jesus says, Father, I pray for all these who will believe in me by their name that they might be with me where I am. Isn't it, isn't it good to know that Jesus wants you, that you're desired by him, that he wants you to be in his presence? Well, that's what he says. And he says here as we finish, he who has a ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Like all the other messages, this is a reminder for those who still care about what God wants. He says, continue to do good work, love others intentionally, serve faithfully, grow more and more each year. And then if we look at the church of Thyatira, it's also a cautionary tale. Friends, if you don't know Jesus, I can't tell you in strong enough terms, you need to come to Christ. You need your sins forgiven. You do not want to face the Jesus of Revelation chapter one. And right now, today, if you hear my voice, today, because tomorrow you may not want to, but today, if you still care about what God, friends, I'm calling on you personally as a friend and someone who loves you, please respond to that call. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful this morning that we can take some time in your word to understand what you desire from us as a body, as a group of believers. Lord, you have given to us everything that we need for life and godliness, to know what you want from us, how to be declared successful as a believer, how to be declared righteous in Christ. God, you, you said you have not hidden truth from us, but that we are your friends and you're, you're willing to share that truth with us. And so God, today as we, as we sit under your word, as it preaches to each one of us, myself included, God, I pray that if there's something that you wish for us to deal with this morning, God, that we would, we would take it seriously and we would deal with that. And God, if there's any here who do not know Jesus, who do not know that their sins are forgiven, God, I pray that they will not have to stand before the Revelation 1 Jesus whose eyes are like a fire. God, just call us out as your people today to know you, to love you, and to serve you. I just ask this in Christ's name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. It is our prayer that this has been an encouragement to you. If you're interested in our gathering times or just want more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Join us next week as we open God's Word together.